No, appreciate <laughs> good call. Good call. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we thought was so awesome, the beginning of the book, you know, it was kind of serving up the whole story, how you were a lawyer and you had that moment where you step back a minute and you went, you know what, this is not, this is not what drives me. This is not, you know, what fulfills me. And you sort of moving, you moved into this, uh, this new role, this new career, and now you've changed so many lives. So it's always fun to step back and kind of, you know, get your thought process on that. Like what prompted that transition? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in a very sort of intellectually sophisticated family. I, I, my parents were early proponents of psychoanalysis. So I learned about Freud and Jung even as a kid. Um, but somewhere around high school, I don't know what happened exactly, but I, I think it was partly I just did really well in school. And so I became, without even realizing it, more hooked into doing well and getting prestige. You know, I went to an Ivy League college and then I worked in Washington for a year and then I went to a really good law school and a blue chip law firm. And it was funny, it's only in retrospect I realized I was getting more and more and more unhappy the more and more and more prestige I was, <laughs> I was winning for myself. And after about three years working at my law firm, and realizing that the most significant thing I had done in those three years was merge three pickle companies, uh, <laughs> I realized that this just was not the life for me. I just didn't feel like I was making enough of a difference in other people's lives. I didn't really care whether this corporation or that corporation had, you know, a, you know, a better profit sheet or a million dollars or whatever. And so I just quit and I really had no idea what I was going to do next. I went to Europe and I played guitar on street corners for a while and just thought about what I really enjoyed. And I realized the thing I enjoyed the most about my law firm was that other lawyers would come and complain to me about their problems. <laughs> and I was actually relatively good at solving them. Um, and so I went back to school and from there, I, just from day one, I knew this was, this was exactly what I wanted to do. That's awesome. And one of the one of the big takeaways I had from your book was how you can take a a problem and instead of you know reverse reversing it back to ground zeros, you can give that individual tool and take it and use it and win on the spot. Yes. Yeah. It's it is really interesting. I and I have to credit my co-author Phil Stutz with really with really teaching me that idea that you don't need to go all the way back into your history and discover why a problem uh, developed in order to solve the problem. You know, the 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 analogy that he and I always developed was if a plumber came over to fix your toilet he would, you would never be satisfied if he said, um, okay, it's gonna take a while to solve, to unclog your toilet. In fact, we're gonna to have to meet weekly and discuss how it got clogged, and then it'll get unclogged. <laughs> You'd expect him to fix the toilet right on the spot. And what, it turns out that you can actually do that psychologically by using tools when a problem occurs you can actually shift your patterns of behavior and your patterns of thinking and feeling 
and the whole problem can solve without you ever actually exploring why it developed. And it's not that I'm against going into the history. I think it's, it's interesting to find out how problems develop, but it's not as absolutely necessary as it was. And when he and I were sort of coming up as young therapists, we both realized that there was just way too much time being spent on history rather than on what can I do now to change the problem, to solve the problem. So the, the plumber metaphor, if I may, like I think it's uh, the epitome of something you do so incredible in your book is you're taking a lot of things that are um, obviously scientific, right, in their nature, and, and data-driven, and you put them in stories that are so relatable, um, which I think is, is so why this book's been such a big success. I think that's such an incredible thing to be able to tell stories in ways that resonate with people. And I wonder, I guess this is a curiosity thing, is this, when you were writing this, was that something that you guys had in mind? Like, let's take these and let's, let's present them in a way that, you know, make people that resonate or was it just something that came through naturally as you're putting your thoughts on the paper? No, it didn't come naturally at all, actually. Um, but, but <laughs> I mean, I really had to learn how to write like that, but you know, my, my writing got ruined by law school <laughs> because it's such an analytical, you know, technical form of writing. But what both Phil and I, I think decided from the very beginning was that we were writing the book for real people with real problems. We were not writing a book for professionals. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that wasn't the book that we wanted to write. We didn't want it to be theoretical or abstract in any way. We wanted it to be kind of a how-to manual to solve problems that, and, and what we picked in that first book was the five most common problems that we came across in both our practices. And so the, the case histories were, were really there so that exactly as you said, people could read them and, and relate, even if they weren't exactly like the character that we, you know, that we were portraying, they could say, oh God, I know what that feels like, or you know, I know what it feels like to feel insecure, or to have trouble speaking in front of people, or, to be filled with negative thoughts all the time, which is something everybody I think is filled with right now because of coronavirus. But, you know, just wanted to make it as relatable as possible. That's awesome. Yeah, as a political science major, like that was one of the first things that, that stuck out to me because we're taking some of these concepts, you know, like um, the maze, for example. And we're like, this is, yeah, it's prevalent to, to us being... Uh, people that function better in our lives. And, but it's also from a business perspective, because again, we're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like, this is ideal for that client that you just want to shake and say, what's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> so there's a, a lot of overlap there. Yes. I, I just want to underscore how important that is when you write something, regardless of who it's for or what it's for, but, but especially in business, people tend to get too technical. They forget that there's another human being having to read what you're writing. And the more personal, the more you can sort of directly reach out and, and you know, touch that person, the more likely they are to read it. I found myself as I was writing both books, um, kind of talking it out 
before I actually wrote anything down because I find that when I talk, I relate more easily to, you know, to people because I'm constantly monitoring their reactions. So in my room where I wrote, there would be kind of like an invisible audience standing in front of me and I would be talking it out to them. And when I would come across a sentence really good, I would write that one down, you know, kind of thing. And if you hold yourself to that discipline, your writing gets really good. Hey Barry, I got a question. What do you think now? I mean, obviously the, the world is unsettled and people are, in some place what do you think that is and what tool would you recommend they use uh, to get out of it yeah i mean look people are overwhelmed with anxiety and a lot of people are adopting kind of a dark view of the world and and look it's understand it's understandable i mean in in a in a remarkably short period of time our economy has tanked and there's this virus that is highly contagious and potentially lethal. There's one tool that I really recommend to people that enables you to maintain your perspective, meaning that you can be aware that there's something dangerous going on out there, but, but, but it's happening within the context of a good life, so your perspective is strong, and because you're, you're maintaining your perspective, you can actually take advantage of the amount of time you now have available to you to do things that are in your best interest. I mean, what I keep telling patient after patient is, you're never gonna have this much time again, you know, after this thing gets solved. So what about that book you were planning to write? What about that business plan you were planning to write? What about that sculpting class you were planning to take? You could take it online. What about that instrument you were planning to learn? Because I'm telling you, the people that are going to come out of this, the least you know, hurt by it and, and the most um, powerful in the wake of it are people who use their time effectively while this is going on. So the tool that I'm describing is, is called the grateful flow. And what it does is it not only reminds you intellectually, but it gives you the experience of some sort of unknown source out there that is constantly giving you good things. Just to name a few, your body digests food, pumps blood, inhales and exhales air without you having to do anything and without you even understanding how it does it. The fact that you see and hear and touch and taste and smell things, and somehow your mind takes all of that sensory input and organizes it into a coherent worldview and organizes it instantaneously is frankly kind of a miracle. I mean, the human brain is the most complex structure in the known universe. It is miraculous. And then there's just the beauty to the world, you know, the sun sparkling across the ocean or uh, the snow-capped mountains or the stars at night. The, there, there was a morning a couple of mornings ago where I woke up and looked outside and I saw this rainbow that started in the Santa Monica Mountains and ended up in the Pacific Ocean. And it was spectacular. My favorite poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, says it really good. He says, just truly being here is so much. So when you use this tool 
grateful flow and you have that experience of the universe giving you positive things constantly, it relieves your anxiety. That's the biggest benefit you get, just number one off the bat. But when you use it repeatedly, you gain the perspective that you need to actually take advantage of the time that you have. Beautifully put. Yeah, we're, uh, our, you know, our podcast is Books to Business. And, you know, these tools are so applicable to business owners who are taking on, you know, some of them are taking it right directly on the chin right now. Um, yeah. Carrying employees that aren't productive for them right now. And a lot of them are doing it out of grace. Some amazing stories that are already surfacing about people that are carrying their companies during these hard times. I can saw yeah. a few of them. Um, and, you know, we were, when we chose this book, we were saying, you know, this is a book uh, that business owners have, you know, that unique psychology. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of people to talk to a lot of times, particularly small businesses. You want to talk a little bit about your new book? Yeah, it's, a, it's also a great book. It's four new tools um, that are designed for a whole new set of problems that we decided to tackle. Um, the first one is something that I think we all suffer from as a society, which is just impulse control. You know, whether it's one more donut at the end of the day or whether it's, you know, looking at pornography or smoking or, you know, or, or by the way, a reaction that is impulsive, like raging at someone or, you know, saying something ill-advised to somebody, whatever. This is a society that is just rife with impulse control problems. We have a tool that enables you to control the impulses and actually transmute them into something more creative. The second tool, which is called the Vortex, is a tool that's designed for those moments when, you know, like probably right about now for, for us all, there's like a letdown in your energy and you can't, it's hard to sort of like keep going and push yourself. It's a tool that creates just enough energy for you to engage in the next action step that you have to take and then you get energy from there. And it really explains something that I never understood you know, very well before we wrote the book, which is that energy actually comes from engagement, whether it's engagement with other people or engagement with tasks. One of the reasons that we're such a fatigued society is that when we get tired, when we expend a lot of energy, we tend to withdraw, hoping to conserve our energy and not realizing that the withdrawal itself drains you, okay? And then the third tool is designed for, it's really good for business because every business person knows that from time to time, you are going to hit a setback. I mean, we're in one right now. The setbacks keep hitting us one after another after another. In fact, being a shrink, I think, is the only good profession at a time like this, frankly. Um, so it's a tool that enables you to recover quickly from setbacks. What we tend to do when we get hit with a setback is we tend to get demoralized and disappointed. And the longer we dwell in that dis disappointment and demoralization, the harder it is to pick yourself up and move on. And then the fourth tool is designed for situations that are unjust, 
somebody rips you off or somebody gets promoted over you when you were actually more deserving of the promotion or whatever. Again, people's characteristic response to unjust, unfair situations is to rail at them over and over and over again in their heads. It's not, it's not fair. It shouldn't have happened to me. They'll go to their friends or their spouse and complain about it. But really, there's nothing you can do about it. So railing against it, again, drains your energy and doesn't get you anywhere. What you want to teach yourself to do when something unfair happens is get over it as quickly as you possibly can and move forward. And that's a tool that enables you to do that. So lots of really good stuff for people. So I have a quick question about that. And then I just want to make sure I don't, someone called in specifically with the question about, about the shadow. So I want to make sure I don't forget that in a second. But sure. So what, what piqued my interest is um, rule number three right there um, with setbacks and, and how to handle those versus rule number one in tools, the sort of role reversal going into pain uh, type concept. Um, it sounds like they're, they definitely share some similarities, but just could you mind elaborating a little bit on how they're different and, and how to use them, I guess, in, in units? Yes. Yes. Um, the tool in the tools, the first tool, is called the reversal of desire. And it's used in situations where you're tending to avoid, you know, going, going into something. Um, you know, the typical examples that I come across are, uh, a screenwriter who is really having trouble getting himself to write in the morning. You know, screenwriters are just famous for avoiding writing <laughs> because it's a solitary, difficult endeavor. The first things that you write usually suck. I mean, they're just terrible. You have to sort of spit out a vomit draft first. That's actually a technical term in Hollywood, a vomit draft. And, you know, it's, it's just hard to get started because you know that you have so much to go through before you're going to be able to finish. And so they'll do anything rather than actually sit down and write. They'll do their laundry. They'll rearrange their bookshelves. They'll color code their books, you know, whatever they can to avoid. Now, it turns out whatever it is that you're avoiding, whatever task you're avoiding, what you're really avoiding is the pain that's associated with that task. And let's face it, there's a little bit of pain associated with every task that we have to perform. Even making dinner is effortful, you know? So, so in life, in order to be really productive, you have to actually learn to move toward pain rather than avoid it and move away from it. And it turns out, interestingly enough, that when you move toward pain, it diminishes. You know, think, um, well, I can go back to an example from my youth. My father always taught me, we, I grew up in Los Angeles near the beach, and he always taught me when you wanna get into the water, and the Pacific Ocean is cold, it's like usually 60, 65 degrees. When you wanna get into the water, don't dawdle on the shore. Just go headlong for it and dive and then the pain is over, right? So the reversal of desire is a tool that enables you to do that with any pain that is stopping you, anything, that's, anything that you're avoiding. Now, the tool in the other book that you're referring to, which is the, the tool about setbacks, 
that's a post facto tool. In other words, you've already taken the action steps that you have to take, and all of a sudden, there's a setback. You know, your lender pulls their funds, or somebody refuses to uh, help you out that you were really counting on, or suddenly your second-in-command quits, or you know, something like that. Something that really deals a blow to the whole project. Or the example we use in the book, you know, is a is more of a romantic example. You know, a woman has been going out with guys, and you know, with each guy, she's getting like a better person each time. Like she's learning what to look for. Finally, she finds the guy, and after about six months, they just fall out of love with one another. And she gets demoralized because she feels like, how am I ever going to find a relationship? I found the right guy, and he turned out to be the wrong guy. <laughs> you know, type thing. When you're in a demoralized condition, you tend to stop moving forward. I mean, that's really what demoralization is, is it's the sense, why bother? Why bother moving forward? It's that sense of depression or demoralization that we get when we've hit a wall and we've given up hope that we're ever gonna be able to attain our goal. Now, what Confucius said about this is, Man's greatest glory is not in never falling, but in getting up every time he falls. And I a thousand percent agree with that because that's what resilience really is. There's no such thing as being in business and not failing now and then. The real success is do you get back in the game as quickly as you can after you fail? And that the tool in that book is designed to address that issue. Powerful stuff. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, the shadow. The shadow. Tell us about, Eddie so, and I have shadows. We're both te TEDx speakers. Uh, and when I did mine, I was, my shadow was right there with me. Uh, yeah. oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're always in visualizing the, you know, people seeing you for maybe you're not perfect. Oh, God. You've got shortcomings. You've made mistakes. You have things and flaws. Talk about yeah. that. how'd that come about and, and if you can give us an example, someone who might have helped. Well, well, the shadow is an old, old concept. It was actually um, originated by Carl Jung, who was an associate of Sigmund Freud's and then they kind of had a falling out. Um, Jung actually had a dream and the dream was in his dream, he's cupping a small candle, holding it in his hands but he's running away from a giant shadowy figure behind him who's chasing him. And when he wakes up from the dream, he realizes, wait a minute, that wasn't an evil dark figure. That was just the shadow cast by this candle that was in front of me. And so he began to explore the dark side of the human personality. And by dark, I really mean two things. Number one, I mean, whatever it is that we're ashamed of. Um, I've been a shrink for 35 years. Pretty much every guy I've ever treated is afraid that his penis is too small or that his feet are too small or that he's not attractive enough to women or you know whatever it is. Every woman that I've treated has a characteristic fear that often has to do with appearance, whether it's weight or a blemish on their face or whatever. 
we we get ashamed of the things that we think are socially unacceptable okay now there's another whole side of the shadow and that's the shadow that is bad okay that wants to do bad things that maybe wants to hurt people maybe wants to take advantage of people but the problem is that the worse you feel about your shadow the harder it is to get up and express yourself freely with people why because you're afraid that they'll see your shadow turns out by the way public speaking is the number one fear in every survey that is taken people are more afraid of speaking in public than they are of death, which leads to that funny Seinfeld joke where he says, that means, that sur those surveys mean that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. So, so in order to be able to speak comfortably in front of people, you actually have to take your shadow out of its hiding place, stop hiding him, look at him, say to yourself, that's my shadow. Yeah, he's an ugly motherfucker, but he's my motherfucker. And I don't really give a shit what you guys think of him. He's mine. I love him. He loves me. And at that moment, you get a tremendous burst of confidence because you really stop caring what other people think. And I've been working on my shadow for a really long time. And I can tell you unequivocally, I was terrified of public speaking, terrified of it as terrified as anyone has ever been. And I'm actually really good at it now and I enjoy it. What so, a tool. Yeah, I know. I mean, so that one big idea, I mean, we try to give uh, our business owners and our you know, people that want to start businesses, like invariably if you do so, you're going to be public speaking at one point. Like, what a tool. Yes. Um, yeah. We had someone call yes. specifically about the shadow with a question and, and he's asking it. And I'm like, I'm not really, he's Michael Waba. He's going to be thrilled that, uh, that, that uh, <laughs> we're bringing this up right now. But um, so I totally understand that. And I get the concept of creating this identity, everything you're embarrassed of it and kind of creating it, putting it in front of you, staring at it, saying, this is what it is. Let's go. Um, but the question he asked was, why, as opposed to sort of grow outgrowing that or repressing it, like moving on from it, um, you know, versus saying, this is it, we're here for life, let's do this. And I wasn't really sure. I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people ask that question. It turns out that human beings are naturally self-critical. There just isn't a time in our lives where we are able to eliminate all self-judgment. I've never met anyone, no matter how old, no matter how wise, no matter how sophisticated or experienced they are, who doesn't have some, some residue at least, of self-judgment. And as long as there is self-judgment, there is a shadow because the shadow is whatever you are judging in yourself. So it would be nice if we could eliminate the shadow, but Jung was very clear on this. You cannot eliminate your shadow. To be human is to have a shadow, is to have things that you think are wrong, things that you wish you could get rid of, things you wish you could 
improve out of existence, you know, kind of thing. And I think one of the, uh, in general, I, I really like the self-help movement and, and you know, our, our level of psychological sophistication has grown incredibly over the years. But one of the strains of thought in psychology that I don't like is the, it's usually an unstated assumption that we can actually eliminate the shadow because that's impossible. We're not perfect. If we were perfect, we'd be gods, and we're not, clearly. Wow. Well, that's the same. We're just reviewing principles. When something becomes, uh, when the problems go away, life becomes a little boring. Exactly. <laughs> true. Maybe the shadow's a good thing. Yes. Yes. Um, I had a question yeah. really big on uh, visualization. You mentioned that a lot in your book, and the shadow you say, like, physically look at it, separate it from yourself. This is kind of looking forward, maybe a little futuristic, but um, have you ever any, any thoughts of AI or artificial, artificial intelligence looking at the brain and maybe virtual reality where you can sit down with a patient and have them actually look at these things and somehow it recognizes what they're visualizing in their brain so they can make it a hologram. Anything like that that you've experienced or have anything that you're looking forward to in your field of work? I have virtually no experience with, with AI, so I can't really speak that intelligently to it. I think, obviously, AI is going to be incredibly helpful in terms of what you were talking about, visualizing things and, and also just educating people about self-care. You know, there are certain rules for certain syndromes that are really important for people to know. For example, if you have mild persistent depression, there are three things you must do and it will help you. Um, the, the, the first is physical activity every day. The second is making a, a connection with other people every day. And the third is doing something creative every day. And to the, to the extent that artificial intelligence can be um, harnessed in the dissemination of that information, I, I think it has an incredible use. What I'm skeptical about is the effectiveness of one-on-one -on -one therapy with a machine. And I'm skeptical of it for two reasons. The first is effective therapy really requires an energetic connection between the therapist and the patient. And if the therapist is a machine, no matter how well it mimics empathy, it's not actually capable of empathy. And energetically, the discerning patient will know the difference. It'll know the difference between facial expressions that have been patterned after empathy and the real feeling of being understood and empathized with. And the second reason I'm skeptical is that you know, a lot of what good therapy consists of is getting the patient in touch with their own unconscious resources, potential that they might not even be aware that they have. But in order to sense what those resources are or that they even exist, the therapist has to have an unconscious. Machines don't have an unconscious. <laughs> They're just a set of, you know, algorithms and, and information that is finite. 
whereas the unconscious supplies us with things that we don't know that we have. So I don't think it's going to be effective in that way. Thank you. It's a cool You're concept. Welcome. I mean, just for even problem solving in general, I love the point about the empathy, right? Because it's like you can you can give someone the answers or what you think is the answers. You can even lay out a potential roadmap, but people respond to empathy. They really respond to it. I'm, I'm telling you that the most, what makes me a successful therapist is I know a lot, okay? But that's secondary, always secondary to the fact that I can pretty much feel what any patient is feeling because I've had a lot of life experience and I can put myself in their shoes so that nobody walks out of my experience feeling like, eh, that guy didn't understand what I was talking about. I always joke about the lady at the, uh, like behind the, the counter at the airport when the flight's canceled and there's no, there's nothing they can do, <laughs> but it's like, please just pretend you care. You know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Give me, give me a little, a look at least. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good place to close. Uh, I want to respect your time. Talk about the, the faith in a higher force. I know you talked about that spiritual distance, that higher higher uh the, the higher force the higher universe yeah yeah i mean this is a point that um that my my co-author and i really had to think strategically about how do we present this to people because what we're not asking people is to believe in something that they find antithetical to their belief we're not actually trying to change people's belief what we are trying to do is get them to experience something greater than themselves. You know, a writer experiences something greater to, than, than himself when all of a sudden he hits like a slipstream of creativity inside of him and stuff tumbles out that he didn't even know he knew. And many creative people will tell you whether they're writing or singing or dancing or composing music, they'll, they'll come out of a really productive, productive flowing session like that saying, I don't know who did that. I felt like I stepped aside and something came through me that didn't come from me. So that's a typical experience of something greater than you, you know, giving you something. And, and again, we're just trying to get people to have those experiences. We're not trying to sell them a theology or a theory that forces them to believe in anything. We don't care how they describe it or how they, we just want them to experience it because we know that all potential healing comes out of that experience of something greater than you working in your life. We were just having a discussion about flow about the uh, that you get when uh, you're, you're, when your anxiety's been relieved, you're in a place that he's an artist. He actually, you and he have a pretty interesting parallel. He also quit, you know, left a corporate gig and went and played guitar for a while. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Bridge, yeah. But the, you know, the download you get when you're in an opportunity to receive, you've been formatted like the old disc that they used to have. Remember we had to put, this, put the disc in a machine to clear yes. receive information. Uh, the brain is formatted when you're in flow to take information on. And that's where yes. creativity comes. Those downloads come from somewhere. You know, yes. Even 
And to me, that I, I think that's a lot of what really good therapy is, is if the therapist, let me put it this way, if I can put myself in a flow state, then two things happen. Number one, I get that unique thrill of hearing things coming out of my mouth that I didn't know. <laughs> and it's, it's a very strange position to be in, but suddenly you're saying things that like, oh, I've got to write that down because that's really good. <laughs> I like that stuff. And number two, it benefits the patient because the patient is witnessing someone putting themselves in a flow state which is going to be the state they're going to need to achieve to solve their problem. Hey, Barry, can I get your take on something? We were talking about this today. It reminded me of it. I want to see if I can squeeze it in here. So someone asked uh, pertaining to flow and creativity, um, how it relates to business. And I said something I've always struggled with, and I still don't know the answer to this, is creativity versus structure. Like that's always Mm. been... You know, as someone that, you know, part of what I do is I create a video every week and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the smart business move is to scale it and become more efficient. And it just, I feel mm-hmm. like it hurts the process. And um, I wasn't sure how to respond to that question. I said, I'm out there, I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't know how the two can coexist. It's such a great question because, you know, in particularly in the Western world, we have considered these two things to be antithetical to one another. You have flow and creativity and wildness. It's almost Dionysian, you know, in a sense. And then you have structure, which is very serious and fixed. And, you know, you got to do it every day and, you know, obey the time, law, time, law of time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in the modern world, those two things got completely separated. It's, it's why so many of the great musicians of my era, I don't, you guys are probably younger than I am, but they all died of drug overdoses because they literally had no structure to their lives. They allowed themselves to do anything, anything they wanted to do, no matter how dangerous it was, okay? And, you know, they died these heroic but really sad deaths like Jim Morrison dying in a fucking bathtub in, you know in Paris I'm sorry I'm still angry at that um but what'd you say but a few people have died in bathtubs didn't yes exactly yeah exactly but the truth is they are not antithetical to one another if you structure yourself consistently. So for example, one tool that I give to writers is called arbitrary use of time, which simply means a sacrifice of a given amount of time at the same time every day to writing. So the writer has to sit down and say, okay, from nine to 12, nine in the morning to 12 noon, I sit down and I stay in front of the computer and write. And I stay in front of the computer and write, even if nothing is coming out, I'm, st- I'm still anchored there. I still have to stay. And whether they're productive or not for the first day or even the first week or even the first two weeks, what begins to happen is that the flow flows into that structure. structure. The flow is like a river and you can change its course if you are structured, it will follow the structure. It's just that it won't do it automatically and it won't do it on your time agenda. 
You have to keep up the structure. It's almost like keeping faith with the flow. If you keep up the structure long enough, the flow will flow into that. And this has, you know, I, I, I'm probably not as familiar with business problems as you guys are, but it has tremendous application to business because it means that any creative enterprise can succeed if it is structured, number one, and structured for long enough that people start to get creative, number two. That's so powerful. Oh, interesting. Keeping that in my back pocket, for sure. Cool. Right. You got anything else, Stevie? I think that's it. I really cool. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were just wanting to. <laughs> that was actually awesome answer because we, we literally had that exact conversation. I'm not even kidding you, right before the call about flow. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that's amazing. It's, yeah, it's got 65 million views on YouTube. I said, we want to get 265 million. You just got to put out five more videos a week. And now we're saying, like, <laughs> oh, that's not real, not real easy to do because it's, it's an artistic thing you know right 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 uh, but we want to definitely uh you know review your your next you know your next book that book sounds awesome i mean we don't we haven't done that oh yet. Yeah, yeah please do i yeah. Be, yeah i'd be happy to talk with you more about it it's we're growing great. It's we're growing really pretty good, good. cool yeah we're, we're on the uh the book a week schedule so uh, oh my god! Yeah, it's been it's been a blast. Rough. <laughs> twenty books in twenty weeks. Yeah, we did principles. This is oh. a six hundred page book here. We did this one last week, and this one good to great. Damn, this you guys, week. you guys spend a lot of time reading. Well, the trick is the, the trick tool. is Audible at two point speed does miracles. Uh, 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 that's great. Yeah, we use your, that's your downloads smart. and everything. Yeah. But, All right. Yeah, we just cool. want to close by saying, you know. Anything you want to add? Anything you want to plug, or anything that? that yeah, uh, where can the people find you if they want to look for that new book? I saw it on Amazon. Anything else about your new book? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the really the best resource is our website, which is www.thetoolsbook.com, and in particular, that will uh, give you a schedule of webinars that I'm giving. I'm giving one at the 92nd Street Y in New York uh, in April. And then I'm giving two free webinars just for people who are having difficulties during this time because it's just such a troubled time for, for most people where you can literally ask me any questions you want as long as you're okay with other people hearing you know, the problems that you're having. I just think it's a good time for us all to come together as a community and just share our resources. Beautiful. So, But that's a great, that's a great resource because that has our whole schedule on it. Amen. I think people are being more open to having interactions like this, more serious digital interactions the way, you know, this, this crisis has prompted a lot of people to, to learn things, including Steve's grandmother who keeps calling him. <laughs> she keeps, she, she calls him and asks him for technical support like every 15 minutes. It's the cutest thing you'd ever oh, hear in your life. But that's, that's so a great sweet. thing. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, well, we'll let you go. We just want to respect your time, and uh, we love your your books and your principles, and uh, definitely the tools. We're going to be uh, using them, and uh, we'll put you on the docket for a review probably in the later part of the spring or the summer. Thanks so much. I'd love to do it. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry. All right, guys. Take, take, take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.